Section 13 of Tanglewood Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shadifa Mulligan. Tanglewood Tales by Nathaniel Hawthorne. The Pomegranate Seed, Part 2. But my story must now clamber out of King Pluto's dominions, and see what Mother Ceres had been about, since she was bereft of her daughter. We had a glimpse of her, as you remember, half hidden among the waving grain, while the four black steeds were swiftly whirling along the chariot, in which her beloved Proserpine was so unwillingly borne away. You recollect, too, the loud scream which Proserpina gave just when the chariot was out of sight. Of all the child's outcries, this last shriek was the only one that reached the ears of Mother Ceres. She had mistaken the rumbling of the chariot wheels for a peal of thunder, and imagined that a shower was coming up, and that it would assist her in making the corn grow. But at the sound of Proserpina's shriek, she started and looked about in every direction, not knowing whence it came, but feeling almost certain that it was her daughter's voice. It seemed so unaccountable, however, that a girl should have strayed over so many lands and seas, which she herself could not have traversed without the aid of her winged dragons, that a good seeress tried to believe that it must be the child of some other parent, and not her own darling Proserpina who had uttered this lamentable cry. Nevertheless, it troubled her with a vast many tender fears, such as are ready to bestir themselves in every mother's heart, when she finds it necessary to go away from her dear children without leaving them under the care of some maiden aunt or other such faithful guardian. So she quickly left the field in which she had been so busy, and, as her work was not half done, the grain looked next day as if it needed both sun and rain, and as if it were blighted in the ear and had something the matter with its roots. The pair of dragons must have had very nimble wings, for in less than an hour Mother Ceres had alighted at the door of her home and found it empty. Knowing, however, that a child was fond of sporting on the seashore, she hastened thither as fast as she could, and there beheld the wet faces of the poor sea-nymphs peeping over a wave. All this while the good creatures had been waiting on the bank of sponge, and once every half-minute or so had popped up their foreheads above water to see if their playmate were yet coming back. When they saw Mother Ceres, they sat down on the crest of the surf-wave, and let her toss them ashore at her feet. "'Where is Proserpina?' cried Ceres. "'Where is my child? Tell me, you naughty sea-nymphs, have you enticed her under the sea?' "'Oh, no, good Mother Ceres,' said the innocent Zenums, tossing back their green ringlets and looking her in the face. "'We never should dream of such a thing. Proserpina has been at play with us, it is true, but she left us a long while ago, meaning only to run a little way upon the dry land and gather some flowers for a wreath. This was early in the day, and we have seen nothing of her since.' Ceres scarcely waited to hear what the nymphs had to say, before she hurried off to make inquiries all through the neighbourhood, 
but nobody told her anything that would enable the poor mother to guess what had become of Proserpina. A fisherman, it is true, had noticed her little footprints in the sand, as he went homeward, along the beach with a basket of fish. A rustic had seen the child stooping to gather flowers. Several persons had heard either the rattling of jarred wheels, or the rumbling of distant thunder. And one old woman, while plucking vervain and catnip, had heard a scream, but supposed it to be some childish nonsense, and therefore did not take the trouble to look up. The stupid people! It took them such a tedious while to tell the nothing that they knew, that it was dark night before Mother Ceres found out that she must seek her daughter elsewhere. So she lighted a torch, and set forth, resolving never to come back until Proserpina was discovered. In her haste and trouble of mind, she quite forgot her car and the winged dragons, or it may be, she thought, that she could follow up the search more thoroughly on foot. At all events, this was the way in which she began her sorrowful journey, holding her torch before her, and looking carefully at every object along the path. And as it happened, she had not gone far before she found one of the magnificent flowers which grew on the shrub that Proserpina had pulled up. Ha! Huh, thought Mother Ceres, examining it by torchlight. Here is mischief in this flower. The earth did not produce it by any help of mine, nor of its own accord. It is a work of enchantment, and is therefore poisonous, and perhaps it has poisoned my poor child. But she put the poisonous flower in her bosom, not knowing whether she might ever find any other memorial of Proserpina. All night long, at the door of every cottage and farmhouse, Ceres knocked and called up the weary labourers to inquire if they had seen her child, and they stood gaping and half asleep at the threshold, and answered her pityingly, and besought her to come in and rest. At the portal of every palace, too, she made so loud a summons, that the menials hurried to throw open the gate, thinking that it must be some great king or queen, who would demand a banquet for supper and a stately chamber to repose in. And when they saw only a sad and anxious woman, with a torch in her hand and a wreath of wizard poppies on her head, they spoke rudely, and sometimes threatened to set the dogs upon her. But nobody had seen Proserpina, nor could give Mother Ceres the least hint which way to seek her. Thus passed the night, and still she continued her search without sitting down to rest, or stopping to take food, or even remembering to put out the torch, although first the rosy dawn, and then the glad light of the morning sun, made its red flame look thin and pale. But I wonder what sort of stuff this torch was made of for it burned dimly through the day, and at night was as bright as ever, and never was distinguished by the rain or wind, in all the weary days and nights while Ceres was seeking for Proserpina. It was not merely of human beings that she asked tidings of her daughter. In the woods and by the streams she met creatures of another nature, who used in those old times to haunt the pleasant and solitary places, and were very sociable with persons who understood their language and customs, as Mother Ceres did. Sometimes, for instance, 
she tapped with a finger against the knotted trunk of a majestic oak, and immediately its rude bark would cleave asunder, and forth would step a beautiful maiden, who was the hamadryde of the oak, dwelling inside of it and sharing its long life, and rejoicing when its green leaves sported with a breeze. But not one of these leafy damsels had seen Proserpina. Then, going a little farther, Ceres would perhaps come to a fountain, gushing out of a pebbly hollow in the earth, and would dabble with her hand in the water. Behold, up through its sandy and pebbly bed, along with the fountain's gush, a young woman with dripping hair would arise and stand gazing at Mother Ceres, half out of the water, and undulating up and down with its ever-restless motion. But when the mother asked whether her poor lost child had stopped to drink out of the fountain, the Nayad with weeping eyes, for these water-nymphs had tears to spare for everybody's grief, would answer, No, in a murmuring voice, which was just like the murmur of the stream. Often likewise she encountered fawns who had looked like sunburnt country people, except that they had hairy ears and little horns upon their foreheads, and the hinder legs of goats, on which they gambled merrily about the woods and fields. They were a frolicsome kind of creature, but grew as sad as their cheerful dispositions would allow, when Ceres inquired for her daughter, and they had no good news to tell. But sometimes she came suddenly upon a rude gang of satyrs, who had faces like monkeys and horses' tails behind them, and who were generally dancing in a very boisterous manner with shouts of noisy laughter. When she stopped to question them, they would only laugh the louder, and make new merriment out of the lone woman's distress. How unkind of those ugly satyrs! And once, while crossing a solitary sheep pasture, she saw a personage named Pan, seated at the foot of a tall rock, and making music on a shepherd's flute. He, too, had horns, and hairy ears, and goat's feet, but being acquainted with Mother Ceres, he answered her question as civilly as he knew how, and invited her to taste some milk and honey out of a wooden bowl. But neither could Pan tell her what had become of Proserpina any better than the rest of these wild people. And thus Mother Ceres went wandering about for nine long days and nights, finding no trace of Proserpina, and as it were now and then a withered flower, and these she picked up and put in her bosom, because she fancied that they might have fallen from her poor child's hand. All day she travelled onward, through the hot sun, and at night again the flame of the torch would redden and gleam along the pathway, and she continued her search by its light, without ever sitting down to rest. On the tenth day she chanced to espy the mouth of a cavern, within which, though it was bright noon everywhere else, there would have been only a dusky twilight, but it so happened that a torch was burning there. It flickered and struggled with the duskiness, but could not half light up the gloomy cavern with all its melancholy glimmer. Ceres was resolved to leave no spot without a search, so she peeped into the entrance of the cave, and lighted it up a little more, by holding her own torch before her. In so doing, 
she caught a glimpse of what seemed to be a woman, sitting on the brown leaves of the last autumn, a great heap of which had been swept into the cave by the wind. This woman, if woman it were, was by no means so beautiful as many of her sex, for her head, they tell me, was shaped very much like a dog's, and, by way of ornament, she wore a wreath of snakes around it. But Mother Ceres, the moment she saw her, knew that this was an odd kind of person, who put all her enjoyment in being miserable, and never would have a word to say to other people, unless they were as melancholy and wretched as she herself delighted to be. "'I am wretched enough now,' thought poor Ceres, to talk with this melancholy Hecate, where she ten times sadder than ever she was yet. So she stepped into the cave, and sat down on the wizard leaves by the dog-headed woman's side. In all the world since her daughter's loss, she had found no other companion. "'Oh, Hecate,' said she, "'if ever you lose a daughter, you will know what sorrow is. Tell me, for pity's sake, have you seen my poor child Proserpina pass by the mouth of your cavern?' "'No,' answered Hecate, in a cracked voice, and sighing betwixt every word or two. "'No, Mother Ceres, I have seen nothing of your daughter.' But my ears, you must know, are made in such a way that all cries of distress and affright all over the world are pretty sure to find their way to them. And nine days ago, as I sat in my cave, making myself very miserable, I heard the voice of a young girl shrieking as if in great distress. Something terrible has happened to the child, you may rest assured. As well as I could judge, a dragon or some other cruel monster was carrying her away. "'You kill me by saying so,' cried Ceres, almost ready to faint. "'Where was the sound, and which way did it seem to go?' "'It passed very swiftly along,' said Hecate, and at the same time... There was a heavy rumbling of wheels towards the eastward. I can tell you nothing more except that. In my honest opinion, you will never see your daughter again. The best advice I can give you is to take up your abode in this cavern where we will be the two most wretched women in the world. Not yet, dark Kate, replied Ceres. But do you first come with your torch, and help me to seek for my lost child, and when there shall be no more hope of finding her, if that black day is ordained to come, then, if you will give me room to fling myself down either on these wizard leaves, or on the naked rock, I will show what it is to be miserable. But until I know that she has perished from the face of the earth, I will not allow myself space even to grieve." The dismal Hike did not much like the idea of going abroad into the sunny world, but then she reflected that the sorrow of the disconsolate Ceres would be like a gloomy twilight round about them both, let the sun shine ever so brightly, and that, therefore, she might enjoy her bad spirits quite as well as if she were to stay in the cave. So she finally consented to go, and they set out together,
both carrying torches, although it was broad daylight and clear sunshine. The torchlight seemed to make a gloom, so that the people whom they met along the road could not very distinctly see their figures, and indeed, if they once caught a glimpse of Hecate, with a wreath of snakes round her forehead, they generally thought it prudent to run away, without waiting for a second glance. As the pair travelled along in this woe-begone manner, a thought struck Ceres. "'There is one person,' she exclaimed, "'who must have seen my poor child, and can doubtless tell what has become of her. Why did not I think of him before?' "'Tis Phoebus.' "'What?' said he, Kate. "'The young man that always sits in the sunshine. "'Oh, pray do not think of going near him. "'He is gay, light, frivolous young fellow, "'and will only smile in your face. "'And besides, there is such a glare of the sun about him "'that he will quite blind my poor eyes, "'which I have almost wept away already.' "'You have promised to be my companion,' answered Ceres. "'Come, let us make haste, or the sunshine will be gone, and Phoebus along with it.' Accordingly, they went along in quest of Phoebus, both of them sighing grievously, and Hecate, to save the truth, making a great deal worse lamentation than Ceres, for all the pleasure she had, you know, lay in being miserable, and therefore she made the most of it.' By and by, after a pretty long journey, they arrived at the sunniest spot in the whole world. There they beheld a beautiful young man, with long curling ringlets which seemed to be made of golden sunbeams. His garments were like light summer clouds, and the expression of his face was so exceedingly vivid that he Kate held her hands before her eyes, muttering that he ought to wear a black veil. Phoebus, for this was the very person whom they were seeking, had a lyre in his hands, and was making its chords tremble with a sweet music, at the same time singing a most exquisite song, which he had recently composed. For, beside a great many other accomplishments, this young man was renowned for his, for his admirable poetry. As Ceres and her dismal companion approached him, Phoebus smiled on them so cheerfully that Hecate's wreath of snakes gave a spiteful hiss, and Hecate heartily wished herself back in her cave. But as for Ceres, she was too earnest in her grief either to know or care whether Phoebus smiled or frowned. "'Phoebus!' exclaimed she. "'I am in great trouble and have come to you for assistance.' "'Can you tell me what has become of my dear child, Proserpina?' "'Proserpina? Proserpina, did you call her name?' answered Phoebus, endeavouring to recollect, for there was such a continual flow of pleasant ideas in his mind, that he was apt to forget what had happened no longer ago than yesterday. "'Ah, yes, I remember her now. A very lovely child, indeed.' I am happy to tell you, my dear madam, that I did see the little Proserpina not many days ago. You may make yourself perfectly easy about her. She is safe and in excellent hands. Oh, where is my dear child? cried Ceres, clasping her hands and flinging herself at his feet. Why, said Phoebus, 
and as he spoke he kept touching his lyre, so as to make a thread of music run in and out among his words. As a little damsel was gathering flowers, and she has really a very exquisite taste for flowers, she was suddenly snatched up by King Pluto and carried off to his dominions. I have never been in that part of the universe, but a royal palace, I am told, is built in a very noble style of architecture, and of the most splendid and costly materials. Gold, diamonds, pearls, and all manner of precious stones will be your daughter's ordinary playthings. I recommend to you, my dear lady, to give yourself no uneasiness. Proserpina's sense of beauty will be duly gratified, and even in spite of the lack of sunshine, she will lead a very enviable life. Hush! Say not such a word, answered Ceres indignantly. What is there to gratify her heart? What are all the splendours you speak of without affection? I must have her back again. Will you go with me, Phoebus, to demand my daughter of this wicked Pluto? Pray excuse me, replied Phoebus with an elegant obeisance. I certainly wish you success, and regret that my own affairs are so immediately pressing that I cannot have the pleasure of attending you. Besides, I am not upon the best of terms with King Pluto. To tell you the truth, his three-headed mastiff would never let me pass the gateway, for I should be compelled to take a sheaf of sunbeams along with me, and those, you know, are forbidden things to Pluto's kingdom. Ah, Phoebus, said Ceres with bitter meaning in her words, you have a harp instead of a heart. Farewell. Will not you stay a moment? asked Phoebus, and to hear me turn the pretty and touching story of Proserpina into extempore verses. But Ceres shook her head and hastened away along with Hecate. Phoebus, who, as I have told you, was an exquisite poet, forthwith began to make an ode about the poor mother's grief, and if you were to judge of his sensibility by this beautiful production, he must have been endowed with the very tender heart. But when a poet gets into the habit of using his heart-strings to make chords for his lyre, he may thrum upon them as much as he will, without any great pain to himself. Accordingly, though Phoebus sang a very sad song, he was as merry all the while as were the sunbeams amid which he dwelt. Poor Mother Ceres had now found out what had become of her daughter, but was not a whit happier than before. Her case, on the contrary, looked more desperate than ever. As long as Proserpina was above ground, there might have been hopes of regaining her. But now that the poor child was shut up within the iron gates of the King of the Mines, at the threshold of which lay the three-headed Cerberus, there seemed no possibility of her ever making her escape. The dismal Hecate, who loved to take the darkest view of things, told Ceres that she had better come with her to the cavern, and spend the rest of her life in being miserable. Ceres answered that Hecate was welcome to go back thither herself, but that for her part she would wander about the earth in quest of the entrance to King Pluto's dominions. And Hecate took her at her word, and hurried back to her beloved cave, frightening a great many little children with a glimpse of a dog's face as she went. 
Poor Mother Ceres! It is melancholy to think of her, pursuing her toilsome way all alone, and holding up that never-dying torch, the flame of which seemed an emblem of the grief and hope that burned together in her heart. So much did she suffer, that, though her aspect had been quite youthful when her troubles began, she grew to look like an elderly person in a very brief time. She cared not how she was dressed, nor had she ever thought of flinging away the wreath of wizard poppies which she put on the very morning of Proserpina's disappearance. She roamed about in so wild a way, and with her hair so dishevelled, that people took her for some distracted creature, and never dreamed that this was Mother Ceres, who had the oversight of every seed which a husbandman planted. Nowadays, however, she gave herself no trouble about tea-time nor harvest, but left the farmers to take care of their own affairs, and the crops to fade or flourish as the case might be. There was nothing now in which Assyria seemed to feel an interest, unless when she saw children at play, or gathering flowers along the wayside. Then, indeed, she would stand and gaze at them, with tears in her eyes. The children, too, appeared to have a sympathy with her grief, and would cluster themselves in a little group about her knees, and look up wistfully in her face, and Ceres, after giving them a kiss all round, would lead them to their homes, and advise their mothers never to let them stray out of sight. "'For if they do,' said she, "'it may happen to you, as it has to me, that the iron-hearted King Pluto will take a liking to your darlings, and snatch them up on his chariot and carry them away. End of part two of the pomegranate seed.